0: Hello and welcome to the Polemical History Podcast, where we discuss history that sometimes borders on taboo.
1: This is Tim Rudy. And this is Anthony Blackwell. And today we're talking about the origins and history of race as a concept, particularly in the context of two debates dating to 2017, one involving the well-known classicist at Cambridge University, Mary Beard, and the other involving Sarah Bond, professor of history at the University of Iowa, over the whitewashing of classical statues. It's become a sort of common observation that that race is a social construct. Nowadays, when people think about race, um, they think about a person's physical appearance. But it wasn't always the case. Race has been reinvented, rather, over the centuries. And the ancient Greeks and Romans, for instance, didn't really think of people in terms of skin tone. Of course, physical appearance played some role. But language, accent, dress, um, lineage, and so forth preoccupied them much more.
0: Yeah, that's right. And it's really hard I guess for us to think about it that way at least personally it's because I've you know I've grown up thinking about when when I think about race I think about skin tone you know skin tone and race are are so synonymous today Um, and I think this is really because during sort of European exploration and colonialism um, classifying people by their skin tone was sort of a way to uh, construct a hierarchy of civilizations and then sort of justify slavery and other dynamics that conveniently sort of, you know, pegged Europeans at the top. Right. Um, race was race was, well, it was widely used for, for sorting and ranking the peoples in the English colonies, uh, Europeans who saw themselves as free people, Amerindians who had to be conquered and, um,
1: Africans who were sort of by default brought over as uh, slave labor. Even in a previous episode um, on the fighting Irish uh, stereotype, I believe we explored uh, briefly um, the, the, how the English had a long history of separating themselves from others and treating foreigners, such as the Irish, um, as alien others. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so um,
0: all of these sort of ideas came to a head, one could say perhaps under this guy, uh, Johann Friedrich uh, Blumenbach, Um, and he, what he did was he divided humankind into sort of five varieties, uh, and he noted that, um, the clear lines of distinction could not be drawn between them, uh, as they tended to be, they tended to sort of blend insensibly into one another. Um, so this is something that is still supported by archaeologists. Uh, when I say sub-Saharan African, for example, you probably think, uh, you know, sort of like uh, dark skin and uh, maybe really curly hair and so forth. Um, But these features are not universal and uh, no one feature is unique to one group, as we'll discuss later. So his five categories, this Johann Friedrich Blumenbach, his five categories included um, American, Malay, Ethiopian, Mongolian, and Caucasian. Um and I always thought that was weird. I was once I understood where the Caucasus Mountains were, I was like, Why are white people called Caucasian? Do we all come from the Caucasus? Uh so it, it turns out he chose this term Caucasian to represent uh the Europeans because a skull there was a skull uh from the uh the Caucasus Mountains um in uh, in Russia and in his opinion, in Blumenbach's opinion, it was um sort of the most beautiful skull uh he had ever found. Anyway, uh these terms are still commonly used by many scientists in the early 20th century uh because they're just so well known um and most continue today as as major designations of the world's peoples, mm-hmm.
1: right? It, indeed, most of the concepts about race that we're familiar with uh stem from this hierarchy which has subsequently been built upon by scientists or pseudo-scientists um and social commentators in the centuries that followed. That's right. That's right. Um but this this is not
0: to say that uh people back then didn't use uh sort of stereotypes. So in indeed it has been scientifically shown that everyone on earth uses stereotypes um on a daily basis. Uh if you are if you think you're beyond stereotypes you you're wrong. You know, you use stereotypes all the time. Uh like for example when you choose not to run a red light you're stereotyping the situation as as dangerous really um so that's just one example of a stereotype of course we're we're talking about it different kinds mostly specifically to race today but that's just one example um so it turns out that people in uh in roman times actually uh naturally believed that their own cultural group was that was the best surprise surprise there um and others were were sort of strange or flawed in some way and i'll give you some examples um, so Gauls, uh, everyone knows, sort of uh, Julius Caesar and his famous conquering of, of the Gauls, right? Um, so the Gauls were said to be by the Romans, especially superstitious, uh, independent, and uh, and also lazy, prone to violence as well. Um, the Carthaginians, uh, so down there in modern day Tunisia, uh, they were they were clever but devious. Uh, the Germans, whom the Romans never managed to conquer. Uh, they were considered to be strong, um, but violent, easily fatigued, which I thought was really interesting, easily fatigued. Um, they were weak to thirst and heat, uh, but they used um, they, they were used to cold and hunger, so they could handle the cold and the hunger, but if it was hot and there was no water available, they were just, they just collapsed. Um, they were highly monogamous, which the Romans actually admired them for that, and they were considered a, quote, simple living people by the Romans. Um, also for the Romans, uh, uh, just to try to drive home that point that, that skin tone, um, was not, or they didn't think about skin tone the way we think about it today, or the way that maybe a racist person might think about skin tone today. Um, a light skinned German would actually have been considered just as exotic as a dark skinned Indian to the Romans. So just as weird and strange. Um, whereas now we have this sort of like white skin, uh, you know this european dominance for 500 the last 500 years so white skin is considered sort of this uh you know coupled with power and wealth and status um and uh darker skin is considered maybe uh coming from you know the african continent the american continent as we spoke before the europeans saw the the native americans as people to be conquered and uh the africans as uh slave you know used for slave labor slave labor so these ideas were not at all shared by the romans um, anyone could be a slave, as we'll discuss later. Um, so there was no sense of common identity shared between, let's say, an Italian and a German, such as white or European, uh, as such as we have today, like, you know, white people kind of, there's some sort of white community, maybe one could argue. So that idea did not exist at all uh, during Roman times. Uh, One of the more interesting beliefs for Romans was that um, in terms of intellect, they actually believed peoples who lived uh, closer to the equator were generally more intelligent. So I'm guessing that would have been sort of the opposite of what the the Anglo-Saxon sort of idea was uh, developed in sort of the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, So that is to say someone from North Africa for the Romans or the Sahara was considered to be physically weak, but due to the hot sun and the clear atmosphere in Africa... Apparently, that gave them the ability to think more clearly, um, so I thought that was really interesting um, and they The Romans found that the Germans and the Britons sort of the northern Europeans, with their dreary weather uh, they had sort of wet uh, waterlogged heads that were slow and it slowed their ability to think. They were just you know sort of idiots, I guess, as far as the Romans considered. so the Romans thought that this point was was sort of proven by the fact that northern Europeans were hyperactive in the summer in the summer months and rather inactive uh, and sedata- sedentary for the rest of the year. Um, so anyway, r- rather predictably, as I said before, uh, Romans were considered right in the middle in terms of this climate, so their race was the best. They had the most balanced race. It's convenient. Yeah, it's really convenient for the Romans, right? So xenophobia, this is proof that xenophobia existed, uh, just not in the way that we think or that we're we're used to uh, in modern times. Um so but yeah, z- xenophobia was real, but but offenses were more for the Romans sort of um, the things they found sort of outrageous or offensive were based on someone's sort of maybe their language, their accent, their clothes, um, as you said before, Anthony, not really their their skin color. Um, so the Romans, as I said before, the Romans were equal opportunity slaver enslavers. <laughs> so you didn't uh, didn't matter what color your skin was, you were
1: always eligible to become a slave if you were conquered. I think that's an important distinction Tim the difference between race and racism on the one hand and ethnicity and ethnocentrism on the other um although sometimes there is a fine line and the consequences of one um can be just as grave as the consequences of let's say, extreme racism um the two significant differences are that like you said Tim ethnicity relates to let's say, culturally contingent features or traits um, that we mentioned already, common language, common sense of history, values, beliefs, etc., cetera, um, which all kind of come together to create a sense of identity and membership in a group. The most significant quality of ethnicity, I'd say, is the fact that it's unrelated to biology and can be sort of uh, flexible, um, or transformable uh, either way people can change or enhance their ethnicity by uh, maybe assimilating into another culture. Um, you sort of acquire ethnic identity um, and ethnic features are sort of learned forms of behavior. Uh, in, in ancient Rome, for example, groups of people from many different cultures um, were able to acquire some aspects of Roman culture and indeed participated in a sort of common sense of, let's say, ethnic identity with other Romans. Um, Racism, on the other hand, is the belief in and, um, let's say, promotion of a biologically racial worldview. Uh, Ethnocentrism holds um, skin color and other physical features uh, to be irrelevant, I think we could say as long as, you know, you're all a member of the same culture um, or if you're willing to become so. Um, The racial worldview, um, however, um, holds that regardless of any other kinds of similarities, um, a member of an inferior race, and they're usually perceived to be inferior um, because of their physical features, can never be truly accepted. So... I think the important distinction is race is a quote unquote invented sort of fictional form of identity um well, we're gonna explore this um in the preceding conversation, and ethnicity is based on the reality of cultural similarities and differences and I guess the interests that they represent. yeah, that
0: makes a lot of sense. I think that was my feeling
1: uh when i was when I was
0: doing my research as well. Uh, it was something that I kind of already knew, maybe hadn't really looked into very much, but it was, it was something that, um, that, you know, while I was doing my research was a point that was really driven home for me. Um, so for me, I, I think the word race is just a super interesting word, um, for a number of reasons. Um, from what I understood from my, I took a few anthropology classes in college, um, and in anthropology class, they, they told us that the, and I don't want to make this a strictly anthropological view, but I think this is an interesting point. So I'll just, I'll go through with it. Um, so the idea, they said in anthropology class that the idea that homo sapiens should be classified into different races just doesn't make any sense from a genetic standpoint. Um, it's just really hard to make rhyme or reason of such an idea for, uh, when you look at genetics. So the reason for that is that there is very little genetic variation between all humans alive today. Extremely little, especially when you compare us to other species, the genetic variation that exists in other species. Um, So most of the variation in our genetic code is is actually contained within Africa. So what I mean by that is, for example, there is much less genetic difference between someone of, say, Irish descent, Anthony, and someone of uh, Han Chinese descent than there is between two people who are... One is from Western Africa, so let's say, I don't know, Nigeria or Ghana or something like that, and one from Southern Africa, maybe, say, Namibia or South Africa or something like that. So I find that really striking, that there is more genetic difference between the two Africans because if you look at someone from Nigeria and someone from Namibia, I think most people would say yeah, those two people are black. Whereas if you look at a traditional Irish person and a traditional Chinese person, most people would consider those two people to be of a different race. So I always found that to be really fascinating, um, a really fascinating revelation about genetics. Um, And one fact among many others that for me sort of, I guess obliterates might be too strong a word, but severely uh, hinders any scientific basis for
1: our common conceptions about race Mm. i'd agree with you there tim um however incidentally i was rereading um you all know harari's sapiens and just the great book (laughs) yeah and just the other day um i read the following page i brought it with me i'll read it here if you'll indulge me so writing about the debate over the interbreeding theory and replacement theory to account for the disappearance of other humans in the past and the supremacy of homo sapiens, um, he has this to say. Okay, So just allow me to be devil's advocate here for a minute. Let me know what you think. Sure. So um, Harari writes, um, a lot hinges on this debate. If the replacement theory is correct, all living humans have roughly the same genetic baggage and racial distinctions among them are negligible. But if the interbreeding theory is right, that Homo sapiens interbred with um, Neanderthals, for example, there might well be genetic differences between Africans, Europeans, and Asians that go back hundreds of thousands of years. This, he writes, is political dynamite, which could provide material for explosive racial theories. In recent decades, the replacement theory has been the common wisdom in the field. It had firmer archaeological backing, and was more politically correct. Scientists had no desire to open up the Pandora's box of racism by claiming significant genetic diversity among modern human populations. But that ended in 2010, when the results of a four-year effort to map the Neanderthal genome was published. The results stunned the scientific community. It turned out that 1-4% of the unique human DNA of modern populations in the Middle East and Europe is Neanderthal DNA, and that up to 6% of the unique human DNA of modern Melanesians and Aboriginal Australians is Denisovan DNA. So Harari does qualify those remarks by writing, it's important to keep in mind that further research is underway and may either reinforce or modify these conclusions. But I, I don't know what implications this might have for our discussion today. Um, could such genetic differences justify the basis for speaking about different races? Is it negligible? Does it even matter? Um, is it worth our time here today picking at what makes us distinctive? Or should our efforts um, moving forward as a society, as societies, focus on our commonalities instead? Um, yeah,
0: I definitely take your point And I think I would like to say just as a side note, I don't think people should have their efforts restricted at all when they're studying anything scientific. Like, I don't think anything should be off limits, just period. Um, And that's, I think that's a really important thing when it comes to science. But um, I guess from, again, from what I understood, I'm not an anthropologist, I'm not an expert, but I've done a little bit of research on it. And from what I got was that we we can definitely talk about genetic differences between different groups of humans. There's just no question about that. But what doesn't make sense are um, these racial lines that we have drawn over the last few hundred years, um, from a genetic standpoint, of course. Um, So from what I've read about uh, human genetics, the differences are just too negligible uh, and not nearly uniform enough within these so-called racial categories to be able to put people into sort of genetic racial groups. For example, there is no single human trait that any one race has a monopoly on, and there are no single, uh, you know, quote, races where any one trait is totally u- ubiquitous within that race. So I'll give you an example. Um, if you picture the face of an East Asian person in your mind, I'm guessing that their their eyes have these, what are called, epicanthic folds, um, making them look sort of maybe narrower than the eyes of your average white or black person. Um, but the thing is, is that not all Asians have epicanthic folds. Many do not. And there are also millions of people with epicanthic folds who are not from East Asian origin. Um, but that being said, I really want to—I really wanted to talk about in this podcast um, of the idea of race as a community. And I think it's really important. And I think it's, um, it's certainly more polemical, <laughs> more controversial. Um, also, I think there could be striking differences in opinion on this between North Americans and Europeans. Uh, so I would actually like to get your opinion on it um, at some point. So, for example, if you were to tell a Latino person um, that the or, or Latinx person uh, that the Latino race does not exist uh, in any meaningful way as far as genetics are concerned, which is true, then um, and you told them that Latinos are basically genetically indistinguishable from all other humans, which is true, um, I'm guessing that you would get a very wide range of reactions. But one one reaction that I would be sympathetic to and I think you might get is something like, you know, they might say, "Well, that may be true what you're saying, but I certainly, I mean, I feel Latino or Latinx and my my family and friends feel that way and we enjoy our shared traditions, our culture, uh, the Spanish language. Um we're often we're often su- subject to bigotry." Because of, the, because of the way we look and how we talk. Um, so you may tell me that my race doesn't really exist under an electron microscope, but I live here in the real world where my race very much does exist, and I experience it on a daily basis. And for me, I would have to say that's nothing short of an excellent point. And I, I also kind of share that sentiment. I feel like I'm, some, I'm part of some sort of white American or white North American community, Um, and I think we share a lot, a lot of, I mean, we share a common language, uh, virtually all white North Americans speak English. Um, we share a lot of, uh, religious background, like sort of traditions in the family and, uh, you know, values related to, uh, Judeo-Christian, Judeo-Christian religion. Um, and we have our own, you know, sort of unique tendencies and so forth. So I just wanted to sort of tell our listeners that I think it's important to distinguish the idea the the two ideas one is race from a genetic standpoint just doesn't make any sense but race from a community cultural
1: standpoint makes a lot of sense mm. I suspect that language is partly at fault uh, for example I remember on one occasion in secondary school or high school I think it um, I think uh, it would have corresponded to about 10th grade in the American system um, I was actually corrected by a teacher for having used the expression human race in a composition, in a written composition. The correct term he advised me is species. My point is I'd mindlessly repeated just an expression and I'd internalized human race, human race. You know, you, I would have heard it. Um, and it was only later that I appreciated the lesson my teacher was trying to impart, you know, of the necessity for precision in language. Um, we aren't a, a race; we're we're a species. Um, and what you said reminded me of this because I think when individuals speak of race, I think they sometimes mean it synonymously for people, um, and there and therefore confuse it or use it interchangeably with ethnicity. Um, so they're misspeaking. Do you remember the book you you gave me um, that used to belong to your father? Uh, that you brought back from California. Yeah, yeah. Um, a History of the Irish Race. Yeah, it's entitled The Story of the Irish Race. And I remember remarking on that fact because such a title, I suspect, would be phrased differently were it published today and not a century ago, as was the case. It would be probably entitled today The Story of the Irish People. Um, I recently had a conversation with an older American gentleman who described how when he was young on paperwork... You were sometimes obliged to indicate your race, and this reminded me how, on contemporary forums in the UK, for instance, I've noticed that particularly in the UK, in France, such questions are taboo. I yep, mean, definitely yeah, to to use the word race, you are a racist. Yeah, you know, automatically, racist, automatically. Yeah. Um, But on the UK forms, perhaps it's true in Ireland, but I I, I don't know. Um, It's been a long time since I've lived there or had to fill in such forms. But you're now frequently asked to cite your ethnicity. I suppose that's progress. Um, I always laugh, though, because when I'm required to do this, um, white Irish is specifically Mm -hmm. listed. I mean, if you're black Irish, is is that a different ethnicity to white? I don't know. I, I just find it kind of... A ridiculous thing to ask on a a form if they really wish to know my ethnicity the color of my skin ought to be inconsequential um yeah (laughs) that's fascinating white irish i gotta say i've never heard of that anyway do you remember hearing anything a few years back um about an historical controversy in which um mary beard a classicist at cambridge university became embroiled it was on the subject of the cultural and ethnic composition of roman britain um, it was triggered by an educational BBC cartoon depicting um, a high-ranking Roman official
0: as black. Oh, really? Well, wow. No, no, I don't remember that one. Um, there are so many controversies these days about this stuff, uh, like uh, Bridgerton, which we'll talk about later.
1: Um, but uh, I think I, I, I must have missed that one. Uh, well, some commentators, um, such as the notorious Paul Joseph Watson, he's a, a far-right tuber and editor or at least a former editor of Infowars, you know, a far right conspiracy site um, that was favored by uh, former President Trump. Right. Um, well, he cast a cartoon and it's this attempt to rewrite history for ideological purposes, you know, for modern political exigencies. Howard Williams, a professor of archaeology at the University of Chester, writes, however, that given our modern obsession with skin tone, and the fact that migration and, quote-unquote, race remain cornerstones of our political discourse, it's not surprising that how we represent the people of, okay, in the, in this case, Britain's past, comes to the fore in terms of ethnicity. Um, however, in the fields of, let's say, archaeology and history, this is a much debated term.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and I have to say, it kind of reminds me of... Um how you see portraits of Jesus in Catholic churches around the world. And he's almost like this blonde haired, blue eyed Jesus Christ. Um, Of course, the irony being that Jesus grew up in a part of the world where nearly everyone had sort of like Mediterranean features, right? Sort of dark hair, dark eyes. Um, Not everyone, but I suppose it's possible Jesus was (laughs) blonde hair and blue eyes. But um, I know several comedians have uh, commented on that, and actually, Muhammad Ali as well commented um, that that uh, he sort of made tropes about that uh, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus.
1: Yeah, I've often thought about that. Actually, it's um, you know, it's claimed that the, that familiar image of Jesus comes from the Byzantine era, and that um, Byzantine representations of Jesus were symbolic; they weren't supposed to be historically accurate um, because they were all sort of based on this image of an enthroned emperor. And the halo, for example, was originally a feature of of the sun god, uh, but was attributed to Jesus to sort of emphasize his divine credentials. And over time, this visualization, which was like a form of propaganda, really became the standard model. And in 2001, I remember a um, a forensic anthropologist uh, by the name of Richard Neve. He created a model of a Galilean man for a BBC documentary called Son of God. Um, it was kind of based on an actual skull found in in that region. He wasn't claiming that it was Jesus's face, but it was meant to prompt people to consider Jesus as being a man of a particular time and place. Okay, I think I've heard something about that Son of God documentary. Yeah, it's it's actually the I think the area of expertise of a uh, professor at King's College London, um, Joan Taylor, and she's written extensively about it. In fact, she she has a she has a well, she wrote the proverbial book on it.
0: Okay. Very cool. Well, um, yeah, that's that's all really interesting. But uh, yeah, sorry for the sidetrack there. Let's get back to the, the Roman cartoon, though, as you were saying. I'd like to hear more about how that
1: played out. OK, right. So um, Mary Beard um, came under fire for this assertion that there was at least some ethnic diversity under under Roman rule in Britain. And she was supported by the likes of David uh, Olosoga, who is a professor of public history at the University of Manchester. I, I believe he has a new book out at the moment who, in an interview to Guardian, stated the historical record tells us that there were black Africans and North Africans in Roman Britain, and the archaeological record scientifically proves both contentions. Um, In his blog, awesomely named Archaeodet, by the way, um, Howard Williams, who I've already mentioned, explains that it's widely known in academia that Britannia not only built upon complex interactions between Iron Age peoples along the Atlantic seaboard, but saw the arrival of a range of many new people from across the empire and beyond, and that crudely this can be seen as an ethnically diverse society. In fact, I recall reading back in 2016 about these two skeletons with um, Asian ancestry that were unearthed at a Roman burial site in London, uh, which obviously challenges the dominance of the traditional view that Roman Britain was a homogenous society, although, you have to keep in mind that absence of evidence isn't necessarily evidence of absence and that these finds likely represent the exception and not the rule to Roman Britain. Um, I believe it was the first time people with Asian ancestry have actually been identified in Roman Britain and only the third or fourth in the empire as a whole. I think the first was a um, an Asian man uh, discovered in Wagneri in in Italy. I know I'm mispronouncing that. Even Howard Williams stated that the BBC website was probably misleading to suggest that their cartoon uh, portrayed a, let's say, typical Roman family. In the wake of um, the Twitter storm um, over this controversy, Cambridge University's Faculty of Classics, where Mary Beard actually works, um, stated that they uh, welcome and encourage public interest in and reasoned debate about the ancient world, such as Professor Beard has always sought to encourage but that the evidence is in fact overwhelming that Roman Britain was indeed a multi-ethnic society. I guess the whole debate really says more about our preconceptions about the past um, and sort of underscores the implications of um, being historically ignorant. Yeah, yeah, and I think I've said in the past that uh, historians,
0: for me, from what I've gathered and noticed, uh, tend to, as a rule, sort of underestimate how old things are and how capable people were in the past. So um, a couple of things there I had in mind while you were speaking. Um, first of all, yes, our preconceptions about the past are very strong indeed. Um, but that's what makes it so fun to learn new things about history, like uh, really new revelations that totally turn, uh, flip over you know, what we thought before. I think that's like super exciting stuff. Um, but I, I think people just react the wrong way. Uh, they get very uncomfortable when what they thought to be true turns out to be untrue or slightly untrue. Um, I think my reaction would have been like, wow, black Romans, that's interesting. That's cool. That's that's new information. Um, I wonder how common was that was. What percentage of Romans were black? I don't know. That would be interesting. Uh, we, we will probably never know for, for sure, but uh, maybe we can find out more. Um, and then the second thing I wanted to say is that I, I have read accounts um, of Chinese travelers, I think it was at a later period than what you were talking about uh, but, they, but uh, Chinese travelers um, writing down uh, what, they, what they noticed while traveling in the Middle East and, and the Roman Empire um, and it's super interesting to get their point of view um, on Roman culture uh, so yes, I, I don't think it's totally unlikely that
1: Asians visited Rome before those uh, accounts were written Sure. I know for a fact um, there were slave trade connections, for instance, between India and China and India and Rome. And in a previous episode, I think our one about um, plague in antiquity Mm. or ancient pandemics, we spoke a little bit about these trade links. Um, It's hard to say with certainty whether a given person was black or white in our terms. Um, We already established that being Roman wasn't about tracing your origins like to one city in Italy. Uh, but as the empire grew, citizenship and ethnicity was extended to those conquered. Um, it can be even more difficult to be sure about ethnicity because Africans also took on Roman names. And Beard cites the examples of um, Quintus lollius Urbicus, a Berber from what is now Algeria who became governor of Britain. Um, the Emperor Septimus Severus, who who came from Libya, was married to a Syrian, and who ran the Empire from York for a period, and a Syrian man named uh, Barates, who settled down in Britain in the 2nd century AD. Um, But even in the case of Septimus Severus, the first Roman emperor from Africa, Mary Beard, says, we don't actually know the color of his skin. And the same goes for Quintus Lolius Urbicus, often claimed to be Berber, as I just mentioned, um, which he may well have been, but it isn't certain either. Even those Asian skeletons um, I referred to a few moments ago, archaeologists and historians are still divided as to the explanation behind their presence in Roman Britain. Um, As you know, and as you said, Tim, the expansion of that empire across most of Western Europe and the Mediterranean led to a lot of assimilation and movement of many ethnically um, and geographically diverse communities whether that was for trade or because of their occupation or their social status, for example. Some may have been soldiers, others may have been slaves. Yeah,
0: yeah, definitely. It's well-documented that humans are uh, naturally drawn to migration, especially when times are tough. Uh, Look at us, for example, we call ourselves expats, Uh, but isn't that just another sort of fancy word for immigrant? Um, Anyway, also, as you say, forced migration uh, is another human tendency for sure.
1: Um. Yeah, so this controversy um, surrounding Mary Beard actually reminds me of another debate that occurred around the same time, um, which has since become implicated in today's so-called statue wars. Um, mm-hmm. Have you heard about Sarah Bond, who's written extensively on the quote-unquote whitewashing of classical statues? No, no, st- statues, really? No, I've never heard of that. Um, Well, Sarah Bond um, is the assistant professor in the classics department at the University of Iowa, and she asks, why do we think of classical statuary in terms of gleaming white marble when they were actually painted? Um, It reminds me of, I don't know if this is true for you, Tim, when I try to imagine a person or an event from, let's say, the 19th century, I have to overcome this limitation of imagining that person or event in black and white because it becomes so habituated to seeing black and white depictions of that period, you know photographs um have you ever seen the movies Pleasantville
0: or the Giver? Yeah, I've seen Pleasantville I really enjoyed pleasantville um and then we we read the giver uh back in uh, middle school, I believe maybe high school I'm not sure um and I really enjoyed that book. I think I read it much faster than the teacher uh required um probably the first ever dystopian novel I had read. Um, But yeah, I I share the same uh, sort of sentiment as you. When when I imagine uh, an old train from the 1890s uh, on its way to Vienna or something in the winter with uh, aristocrats aboard uh, sipping tea and playing cards, I definitely imagine this all happened Mm -hmm. in uh,
1: black and white. Yeah, I'm fascinated by this idea that you don't see a color unless... You've got a word for that color, uh, for example, I don't know if you noticed, but the himba tribe in Namib- in excuse me in Namibia um, has no word for blue, and the psychologist Jules Davidoff, who studied the himba, uh, concluded that without a word for a color, it's actually more difficult to differentiate that color from others, and perhaps the same is true for race we We didn't see race quote unquote okay, until we invented the concept of race. Um, Mm -hmm. there's actually a storied history of painted statuary Um, art historian and director of the Met in New York, Max Hollein has noted that the idea of a pure marble white antiquity has prevailed despite evidence to the contrary Um, indeed ancient sources the likes of Vitruvius and Pliny um, have noted the presence of colour used by ancient sculptors Um, and in fact if you go to a museum, though they may appear white to the naked eye, in fact, many of these statues actually retain traces of paint, inlay, and gold leaf, which digital technologies are able to restore to their original polychromy. Um, the associate professor of art history at the University of Georgia and uh, polychromy expert Mark Abbe, attests that burial, um, early modern restoration practices, and historic cleaning methods have all reduced the original colors on these kind of Roman marble sculptures. And Sarah Bond naturally asks, if we know these statues were polychromatic um, or, you know, in color. Colorful, yeah. yeah. colorful. Why do they remain lily white in our popular imagination? Yeah,
0: yeah, it's interesting. I've seen, um, I think you've seen the same one. Uh, it's a, a recreation of... Um, the Acropolis at Athens in a, a modern video game. It's really well done. Uh, it was the Assassin's Creed video game. Um, and everything is really, really colorful at the Acropolis, which is strange because I've been to the Acropolis in real life today and uh, there's no color <laughs> to be found anywhere.
1: Yes, and it, it, it totally changes how you think about the past. And I love those moments. It's It's sort of like staring... For so long at an image, think of one of those perceptual illusions on a poster that you would have had in your dorm room, Tim. When suddenly you 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 perceive a completely different image, Um, and I love these kind of um, perceptual shifts in your sort of imagination when you think about the past. Um, Bond's main thesis is, and I'm I'm quoting here from her blog, which is a sort of manifesto to fellow classicists, um, that despite our knowledge of the prevalence of polychromy on ancient statuary, there is a predominantly neon white display of skin tone in respect to classical statues, and this assemblage of neon whiteness thus creates a false sense of homogeneity across the Mediterranean world. And moreover, the idea that white marble is beauty is not an inherent truth of the universe. It was in part developed by influential art historians during the early modern period in Europe And this visual argument continues to be asserted and to shape what we in the West consider to be pulchritudinous, a wonderful word which I had to look up, meaning beautiful. Yeah, it's a mouthful, that one. Yeah. Bond suggests so that um, how we color or fail to color the Roman or Greek worlds, classical antiquity, it's often a result of our own cultural values um, and that... I suppose, Eurocentric art history of previous centuries um, equated whiteness with beauty. And uh, she gives the example of a German art historian uh, who's also an archaeologist uh, and a Eurocentrist, a guy called Johann Joachim Winckelmann, who published two seminal volumes on the history of ancient art that were hugely popular in Europe at the time, um, and that perpetuated the idea that white marble um, classical sculpture was the epitome of beauty. And um, there is an interesting uh, professor, she's Emerita Princeton um, historian uh, by the name of Nell Irvin Painter, and in her book, The History of White People, um, she argues that Winkleman regularly denigrated non-European nationalities, and uh, as she puts it, color and sculpture came to mean barbarism, um, for they assumed that the lofty ancient Greeks were too sophisticated to color their art. Wow. Her her last name is painter. Seriously. (laughs) Cool. (laughs)
0: Um, yeah, no, that's all, uh, I I had never thought of this subject before you brought it up uh, in the research and, um, it's, it's a strange one. I gotta say, I I don't really know how I feel about it. Um, is, is it weird that when I saw the Acropolis was all painted over, uh, in the, in the ancient times there in the video game, I actually found it to be quite a bit less beautiful. Um, Perhaps this is something that, you know, perhaps there's something to be said about the um, modern screens as well, because like almost all screens today, like on your iPhone or on your computer, um, and for the last 15, 20 years or so, this has been true, they're able to display a minimum of 16 million different colors. It's something I teach in my classes. Um, And of course, we cannot discern, the human eye cannot discern very well between two colors that are very close on the 16 million color, um, spectrum. But, um, there, you know, there's just too many little shades of green and blue and red, um, and that even, a you know, a simple smart, uh, like a, a cheap smartphone is able to display today. But, um, you know, we do still experience these colors on a daily basis. So I'm wondering maybe does that constant exposure to this vast array of beautiful color, has that desensitized us somewhat? I don't know, maybe not, just a thought. Um but there is there's is certainly a um what I can say from a, a computer science perspective, um from a design perspective in terms of software that there is a a lot of value placed on minimalism. So not necessarily the color white uh, making everything white, but um definitely trying to use as few colors as possible um and uh you know when you're designing a user interface like using white, black, and gray are, are universal or almost universal. And then probably choosing one or two other colors and that's it. Um, having a, having a super colorful website with like, you know, like rainbow themed Mm. website is generally considered bad design and it will scare, it will like, you know, reduce
1: the number of users you're going to get. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, to what extent then are, are those ideas of kind of beauty universal or, you know, uh, specific to to uh, contemporary ideas of art and design. I think yeah. the fact that you intuitively judge the Acropolis to be less beautiful after seeing it in color, um, I guess that's the point that Sarah Bond is making, um, that we may have begun to associate whiteness or effacement with beauty, whereas color we view as kind of being kitsch yeah. or something. Mm-hmm. But that's not to say that ancient Greeks and Romans didn't see skin tone. Um, I mean, sources do mention it. And classical artists did try to obviously convey skin color in their sculpture and could indeed exaggerate racial features in their creations. And like you said earlier, Tim, Romans were guilty of stereotyping. Um, That being said, ancient persons didn't engage in the um, construct of biological racism. Um, They didn't really have a color prejudice. I think assumptions about race have to um, take into account factors other than those that are physical Um, in fifth century Athens um, racial theory during the Persian Wars produced the categories Greek and barbarian I think we've spoken about that before Mm -hmm. and sort of set them in opposition to one another Um, and this process could actually be as intense at the time and destructive as sort of black and white in our own age um, I mentioned earlier how extreme ethnocentrism could be just as bad as extreme racism. I mean, just think of the numbers Caesar is estimated to have killed on Gaul. Um, I think according to Plutarch, it's exaggerated to uh, what, a million or the millions, but probably wouldn't have been quite as high, but still yeah. huge. Um, ideas about race in antiquity, um, therefore, were completely distinct, but as closely bound, um, I'd say, to... Um, political and historical contexts uh, such, as to, such as those that came later. Um, right. According to uh, Howard Williams, who I've mentioned a couple of times already, um, hardly anyone in academic circles would consider the ancient or medieval wor- worlds excuse me, as constituted by ethnic groups who define themselves or others primarily in terms of physical appearance, let alone skin tone, and he says that instead ethnicity is uh, considered a complex and contextual negotiation of identity uh, deploying varied media including the things we mentioned at the beginning of the show language costume and material culture alongside kinship and place of origin among many other things yeah and this is something i found in my research research too i think it's
0: pretty much the definitive thing to be said on race in ancient times um mm. you know the definitive point to drive home to uh, sort of juxtapose ancient
1: points of view versus our own modern ones mm. yeah white simply um wasn't a category of analysis or identity used by um people in antiquity i mean for three thousand years um you know People's intermittently came in contact um, with others, including um, African blacks, in, in in like commerce and war, and uh, they left a record of these encounters in art and in uh, written documents. I mean, frescoes, um, mosaics, uh, ceramics um, from both the Greek and Roman periods reveal a fascination with Black Africans and, particular particularly Ethiopians, and uh, but these uh, these peoples were most commonly known as Kushites, like I said, Ethiopians, Nubians. Um, They were redoubtable warriors and they commanded the respect of their adversaries who encountered them. And the overall view of people we would describe as black today was highly favorable. Um, And in science, philosophy uh, and religion, color um, wasn't the basis of uh, theories concerning inferior peoples. In fact, according to the latest story in a classicist, Frank M. Snowden Jr. of Howard University, nothing comparable to the virulent um, color prejudice of modern times existed in the ancient world. Okay. Um, Sarah Bond argues that the onus is partly on the media and uh, fashioners of popular culture um, to correct this uh, sort of misrepresentation of antiquity. Uh, so, for example, and as an avid gamer, Tim, mm-hmm. uh, you already mentioned um, Assassin's Creed. You you may actually have something to say about this. Um, Bond argues that depictions of ancient Roman video games also perpetuate this perception of whiteness um, through the recreated statues and depictions of people. And uh, she cites digital humanist and uh, video game expert um, Hannah Skates-Kettler um, having noted that whiteness depicted in popular video games set in the ancient world such as um rise son of rome i don't know are you familiar with this one oh yeah i beat that one (laughs) (laughs) Um, discourages many people of color from seeing themselves in those landscapes and she claims that whiteness um, or the whiteness of these games isn't an altogether conscious decision but that game developers have uh, seemingly inherited uh, false constructions of the past uh yeah
0: i um to uh make a bad pun i wouldn't paint with too broad a brush but uh i think she's generally right on this one more or less um and in fact i might even take it a step further um so i have noticed in uh historical video games specifically uh historical grand strategy video games that not only um do you see sort of not only are white people uh too frequently seen where other skin tones might be expected but also when you when you see darker skin characters, um, it doesn't really look like the developers took enough time to sort of model a variety of different facial features and hair types and so forth um, It's not the case every time, but I've seen a few video games where um you know you have a black or a tan skin character with darker hair who looks just exactly like the white character um, but with like uh Like, they just turn down the color on the eyes and the hair and the skin and so forth. So what I mean is that they they come off looking a little bit artificial, um, as if they had just taken the white character model and just, like, painted over them, which is obviously... It it doesn't really... It it looks very artificial to a gamer, and it looks... um, I wouldn't say it looks racist, but it just looks wrong.
1: (laughs) Mm. I think it was... Um, Sarah Bond's blog actually that directed me to this Tumblr account called uh, MedievalPock um, whose mission statement is to address um, common misconceptions that people of color didn't exist in Europe before the Enlightenment and to emphasize the sort of cognitive dissonance in the way this is reflected in, in media such as games, uh, video games produced today. Um, in fact, quoting from that blog the Ubiquity in modern media to display a fictitiously all white Europe is often thoughtlessly and inaccurately justified by claims of uh, quote unquote historical accuracy. Um, this blog is here to emphasize the modern racism that retroactively erases gigantic swathes of truth and beauty. Um, this blog is dedicated to providing a counter-narrative to dominant social, cultural, and political narratives about European history in relation to both white identity and white supremacy as an institutionalized form of oppression. Um, As you know, Tim, I recently visited London, and um, it coincided with Black History Month, and I noticed that at King's College there was this exhibition entitled um, Visible Skin, uh, Rediscovering the Renaissance Through Black Portraiture, Um, And obviously this show was on my mind. Uh, I was sort of thinking about the issues we were going to discuss today. Um, And while at the Tate, um, I also picked up a copy of a book that I found by the author Alice Proctor entitled The Whole Picture, which takes a critical look at Western museum culture too and accepted narratives about art. Um, I think these are great initiatives. Um, I'm all in favor, of course, um, of diversifying the cast and repopulating those periods in history where um individual stories or you know those of groups have been erased Um, i'm not as well versed in gaming as you are but um i noticed this on television there's an excellent um, western series on netflix called godless in which they've managed to diversify the cast so you've got all these wonderful interwoven narratives told from uh, a variety of perspectives which um, in hindsight um, mightn't have been the case before the same I, I believe is true of the new film The Harder They Fall uh, starring Idris Elba um, which is the rarely told story of Black Cowboys I haven't seen it yet so I can't really speak to the quality in a movie um, I remember reading in his book also about Black Soldiers um, contri- con- contribution to World War II had a historian Christopher Paul Moore challenged Stephen Ambrose um, of Band of Brothers fame he's a um, is a very good historian of world war ii who was a consultant on the film saving private ryan about the omission of black soldiers from the depiction of the d-day invasion and apparently ambrose had in fact provided the filmmakers with information about the several hundred blacks at utah and omaha beach but that the story was taken in a different direction Mm -hmm. um so i'm all in favor of historical accuracy and uh You know, I do lament when TV fails that sort of um, test, although by the same token, I don't really appreciate when writers and producers sort of rewrite history that legitimately does a disservice to historical accuracy. And I guess I've got to be careful here, lest I appear to be agreeing with um, Paul Joseph um, Watson of YouTube Notoriety. Um, But I'm thinking of shows like Bridgerton, Bridgerton, in fact, that you mentioned earlier that are in my opinion too explicitly political and, and i guess clumsy when it comes to contextualizing those politics but i guess that's the whole point of shows like bridgerton yeah yeah it's um
0: it's okay to ruffle feathers but like sometimes when when you can tell they're doing it just to like really get a rise out of people it's, it can be a little bit annoying um i i guess i, I mostly agree with you um it depends on whether it's just like an artful attempt at like representing old characters in a new skin. Like uh, I recently, it's not really about skin color, but I, I recently uh, rewatched um, the King on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in the King, they had a sort of, um, of course you have an old King Henry. I don't remember which, which King Henry it was, but one of the old King Henry's is dying and he favors his younger son over his older son Um, and you know, in, in reality, what happened was, uh, his, his older son and the older son inherited the throne upon the death of the King. Um, and sort of, he, you know, continued on and the story, the story in the movie mostly follows what actually happened in history. But in the movie, what they did with the two sons is they had the younger, like they had the, the dying King, um, basically disinherit his older son and choose his younger son to inherit the throne. But then also by chance, they had the younger son die, which never happened in history. You know, so this is, for me, it doesn't really, I mean, I think it really got on a lot of historians' nerves, but for me, I thought it really brought something interesting to the script. Mm. So I was like, okay, that's kind of cool. Um, So I, I think little artful attempts to like rewrite history don't always bother me so much. But if writers are really trying to like cash in on Black Lives Matter, like they're done. They're not really trying to serve the movement. They're just like kind of cashing in on on how popular the movement is right now. What's that term? Um, virtue signaling or virtue signaling? Yeah, or just just generally opportuni- general oh. opportunism. You know, um, you know they're exact. They're making like an all black cast just for the shock value of it and, and cashing in on it. Um, I think that's. I mean, it's not outrageous, but
1: it's a little bit dishonest, maybe, an annoying yeah i guess audience members kind of uh decide for themselves what's you know what they find uh you know uh appropriate i mean we, you know like you said there is poetic uh license it's a, it's a whole other debate the you know the responsibility of filmmakers mm. to historical accuracy yeah yeah um Yeah. maybe maybe we'll have it one day um yeah. here on the podcast that's supposed to over beers like yeah, <laughs> we often do. Um <laughs> counterfactuals. Exactly. So Sarah Bond um she she makes a related point about museum cur- curators um asking, you know, what it says today when museums display these gleaming white statues. Um she argues that intentionally or not, uh museums uh present viewers with a with with a false color binary of the ancient world. Um one that sort of perpetuates the skewed representation of antiquity. And she suggests that um, better museum signage, the presentation of side-by-side uh, 3D reconstructions, and the use of light um, might uh, supplement and produce a, a contextual frame for better understanding these um, pieces. I came across um, another very interesting blog. In fact, I came across a number of great blogs um, while preparing for this conversation, Tim, and uh, all of the links can be found in the show notes. Um, But Professor in Classics and Ancient History at the University of Exeter, Neville Morley, asks on his blog why some people start from the position that painted statues and multicolored Romans can't be right in the first place, and explains that today's professional classicists and ancient historians take pretty well for granted statements of fact such as those asserted by Mary Beard and Sarah Bond. According to him, it's due to the way um, traditional historical interpretations have been distorted by contemporary ideologies, as well as due perhaps to equivocation, you know, the tenden- the tendency of historians and other academics maybe to qualify their responses um, as professional historians when interrogated um, by you know, lay people. Um, which invites then skepticism, mm-hmm. which in turn justifies a return to the apparent certainties of one's existing ideas about the past, um, which he says, which he writes were probably taught as straightforward fact without any equivocation about, um, probability and likelihood. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
0: Um, so, so Andy, I just wanted to wrap up this podcast, uh, at this point, um, we're almost an hour in uh and but I wanted to have like a quick um brainstorming session with you on race um you know, two white guys talking about race, of course <laughs> uh, but why not were you know? we're aware <laughs> yeah we're're we're, we're, we're short on minorities in this uh podcast group um so uh we've been through the ancient history of it. I mean, someone could argue rather superficially, but at least we've got an idea of the way uh, the Romans thought about race or lack of thought about it really. And we talked about how many of the modern ideas of race were developed sort of through like, uh, colonization and so forth, uh, Western Europe, um, and how they don't really make sense from a scientific perspective. But, um, I really wanted to address those who were maybe tuning into this podcast and looking for some insight as to why race is such a big deal today. Um, and how it came to be so from a from a historical context. Um, So after thinking about this question for a while, I think I've come up with a few points that might kind of make sense uh, to some people out there. Uh, And I'll try to speak as neutrally as possible, as opposed to saying something like uh, sort of American centric, like, uh, you know, I am American, but I, I know that the ideas on race in America are usually pretty different uh, compared to the ideas in Europe and Asia and so forth. So Um, the first thing I wanted to drive home is we sort of mentioned before, is that the, the only race out there is the human race. Um, and that is homo sapiens. I think that's pretty hard to argue the contrary. Um, you mentioned Yuval uh, Noah Harari, um, is kind of delves into that a little bit, but I think that's generally accepted to be true. Um, Uh, neanderthals and uh those other uh hominids that you mentioned no longer exist right we i mean maybe they're hiding in the jungle out there somewhere but anyway we haven't found that that would be so cool (laughs) that would be news right um so every every human on earth from the the depths of the amazon jungle uh to the gobi desert um you know and you name it ever everywhere in between is a homo sapien um so that was just one point i wanted to drive home The second thing is that there does seem to be some sort of broad categories that we can easily stick people into based on their skin color and other features. I mean, maybe they don't wanna be stuck into those categories, but the fact is that people do it anyway. Um, But um, keeping in mind, as I mentioned before, these are only very rough general categories and they are not nearly as definitive as, say, like a land border is drawn on a map, right? They're very gray area categories. So something that maybe like a Blumenbach would have done. Um, I would use words like Latin American, uh, Northern European, uh, maybe Sub-Saharan African, Central Asian. I think these words do have some meaning today. Um, and these categories wouldn't be wouldn't be foolproof. Um, and I didn't list all the categories. Just, you know, you, the number of categories would probably vary based on where you're from and what your ideas are. Um, but I think you could, for example, Teach, and I think this is important because computers are very objective. Uh, I think you could teach a computer, um, an artificial intelligence program, to uh, predict where someone's ancestors are from with very high accuracy uh, based on their facial features and skin tone. And this is maybe excluding mixed race people because that's that gets more complicated. But um, for me, this is this is the best attempt I can think of to give the word race any any sort of scientific meaning. Um, not that it needs one, but I think people generally give the word race some, some weight. Um, and so the third point is, is that race is regardless of what you think, it's a, it's a real thing. It's very real because a lot of people feel their race every day. And I think this is really important, right? Whether you walk into a room and you instantly realize like, for example, you're the only black person in there, or if you're a Pakistani laborer, uh, in the United Emirates, or uh, an Austra- um, like maybe an Australian Aboriginal or a Rohingya uh, Muslim in Myanmar or a Uyghur in China. Um, you know, the list goes on and on. People feel their race like every day or their, or their ethnicity and their culture, right? But it's often, very often uh, linked to their skin color. Um, so it's important that, to note that, um, you know, if maybe not everyone experience, experiences racism every day, um, a lot of people maybe do, but I think uh, we all feel our skin color from time to time. Um, and so in that way, race is relevant.
1: Sure. Um, assuming that race isn't real in the objective sense as a social construct, it undoubtedly um, exerts a real force in the world. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, and so now bringing it back to a historical context, do do you think it was fairly inevitable that it ended up this way? That that race and skin color became so closely interlinked. Um, you know, as we said before, it it wasn't the case in Roman times, you know, um, sort of people looked at language and dress and kinship and culture much more than they looked at people's skin colors. So do you think it was inevitable with globalization that, um, race and skin color would inevitably
1: become so intertwined? Um, I don't think there's anything inevitable about it. Um, rather that's, that's what's happened. Um, you know I recently read uh, Joinville and Villardouin's Chronicles of the Crusades, these two famous old French chronicles of the um the Four to six and Seven Crusades in the thirteenth century and one would expect to encounter racism in such texts, but I was actually struck by its absence um There is of course evidence of stereotyping and ethnocentrism and xenophobia, but not of racism per se um Perhaps a day will come when we move beyond our obsession with skin tone. Um, perhaps when we've been reminded of our common humanity in the face of, uh, future developments in biotech or something, (laughs) when there are sort of cyborgs inhabiting the earth, um, at which point we'll no doubt find different criteria for excluding the other. Um, I'm thinking of a, um, channel Four TV series called humans. It's really cool. Um, if you're familiar with it, oh no. Oh, yeah, I think you recommended that. I never, yeah. I never saw that. Um, also, I suspect that our species' skin tone will continue to evolve in response to globalization and climate change. Apparently, light skin in modern humans wasn't really prevalent till the Holocene um, period. Um, though, interestingly, genetic evidence hints that at least some Neanderthals may have had fair skin and hair. Oh, well. Um, A related controversy I failed to mention, actually, was how in 2018 it was genetically demonstrated that Cheddar Man, who was indigenous to Britain in the Mesolithic period, so you're talking about 10,000 years ago, had dark skin and blue eyes. Mm. Um, That's cool. The genetic basis for um, the pale skin that was to become characteristic of Western European populations seems to have arrived, in fact, with populations expanding across Europe in the Neolithic and, uh, again, in the Bronze Age. Um, I should add the caveat, however, that reconstructions of skin color based on DNA always come with a warning um, as you're dealing with probabilities uh, rather than definitive answers. Um, And experts emphasize that the genetics of skin color are turning out to be much more complicated than previously thought. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, I should I should actually add that that caveat comes from um, the book um, Ancestors, a prehistory of Britain, seven burials by Alice Roberts, it's a, it's a recent publication, it's really interesting, fascinating book I recommend. And uh, according to Alice Roberts, the response to Cheddarman Man um, says more about identity politics today and indeed racism in a world where people are still too often judged on the basis of their skin colour. And as one individual from Britain's past, Cheddarman urges us to look at human diversity differently and to embrace it. There is nothing ever that can be construed as racial purity There are different populations and they split and fuse through time. And there are and there have been many different ways of being human and none is any more valid than any other. And I think that's a wonderful kind of note to wrap up the show.
0: Definitely. Definitely. And on that note, thank you for listening to this episode of the Polemical History Podcast. Uh, Tell us what Polemical History you'd like to hear discussed next on Instagram or Twitter. Uh, Our handle is at polemicalcast. That's P-O-L-E-M-I-C-A-L cast. Alternatively, you can email us at polemicalcast at gmail.com. If you're listening to uh, if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please give us five stars, not four, <laughs> and leave a comment. Yeah, we need that uh, dopamine hit. <laughs> we need to see those five stars. <laughs> and you can find a, a transcript of this and the future episodes at www.polemicalcast.com dot medium dot com.